Welcome back to Catholic Answers Live. I'm Cy Kellett, your host. Joe Heschmeyer is our guest. And we continue with Open Forum this hour. If you've got a question, we'd love to hear it. 888-318-7884-888-318-7884. If you happen to be watching on the video uh, and you see behind me that beautiful sign that says Iowa Catholic Radio Network, uh, that's because I am in Des Moines, Iowa, tomorrow night uh, doing the their uh, December Days uh, fundraiser. And uh, today got to do a nice talk with a wonderful group of men uh, and a few women at, at St. Augustine Church here. Talked about Joan of Arc. And I am always fired up when I talk about Joan of Arc, so that was a lot of fun. And it's just great to get to come visit the Midwest from California. It's a beautiful time of year to be here. You know, we don't get all this nice, cool weather and all that uh and also to see what normal people pay for a gallon of gas it's been amazing i mean i saw a price uh that was more than two dollars cheaper than the cheapest price i have seen in california all year more than two dollars cheaper and it was at like 10 gas stations it wasn't like just one person went crazy it was at a bunch of gas stations so now that i know what's going on here in the midwest i will possibly be moving here uh joe heschmeyer our guest is a midwesterner down in kansas city welcome back joe thanks for coming back it's my pleasure. I was going to say you should bring some gas but, back uh, with you, but that's actually a federal crime, I think. You'd be going on an airplane. I could maybe I, get I a thermos. I cannot recommend but you do nah, that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what? I could be. Well, I didn't know. There's no sign here that says no gasoline. Uh, yeah. No, I, I. But I. It's. Joe, it's, it's less than half the price here in Des Moines that it is in California. That, like, what's. Well, that makes me think we might be doing something wrong in California. I mean, I love my state, but it does make me question whether we're doing everything right. Maybe perhaps we made some it's mistakes. It's actually something that's really nice because when I go out to California, I feel this incredible weather and there's great food and people are really friendly. And every time I start to get a little swept away, I see a gas station and think, oh, right. That's why I live here. <laughs> right. Oh, they, they do have awfully good enchiladas, but look at that gas price. Uh, yeah, <laughs> right. well, yeah, I guess there's, there's, there's trade-offs. Uh, and that's nice that you come to California and think that the people are really nice, though, because I think in San Diego, people are very nice. I, I, I joke yeah, you about know, it. And I, I will say I this on behalf nice of California. You've, you've been very nice to the Midwest here. I will say in California's defense that the rest of the country's stereotype of California is really just like San Francisco and part of LA and that the rest of the state, there's a lot of good parts. Although I do think there are other stereotypes of California that some of how, how shall I categorize these people? Some of people that you might be familiar with as real housewives have uh, generated other stereotypes about California and that you will find in Orange County. <laughs> some other areas <laughs> but i love my state i mean I, but it, you know i mean uh i i i think people know that i'm joking around a little bit about california but i don't know but i do uh i do have some feelings i've developed feelings about the gas prices now i didn't have feelings about it before but now i have feelings about it <laughs> the number is 888-318-7884 joe heschmeyer is our guest you're welcome to call jack from australia called and he's on the line. And if you call from Australia, call from tomorrow morning. Uh, we got to get right to you. Jack, thanks for the call. Go ahead with your question for Joe. G'day, g'day. How are you both going? <laughs> we're, um, we're going fine. well. How are you there, going, no Joe? One, Wait, no I just want to say. as well. 
I'm going to say yeah, Howdy is second place to that. Go through so many numbers. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, how many numbers did you have to dial to get to us from Australia? Like, how... uh, So you have your number, but then because there's so many different options to be able to call, you either have to add the plus or the 0011, and then there's different options. Oh, and yeah. I, I went through about 20 numbs trying to get through it. It's insane. But, um, <laughs> yeah. I'm well, sorry, real quick. We when appreciate I was, that you did it. I was 16, it. I uh, was in the United Kingdom for the first time, and I had a calling card to call back home because that was still a thing you needed then. But I didn't know was the it thing an about MCI 001. calling card. <laughs> yeah, totally. And you have to do the either plus one or zero zero one. And I didn't know how to do that, so it was like several days before I confirmed with my parents that I actually had made it to the country. <laughs> you were alive, which I think was a little alarming. <laughs> so, well, I don't know if yeah. I don't know if Jack uh, realized that that how much he delights us when he says, how you going? Because that is not an American phrase. That is an Australian also, phrase. Day, and it is so much, uh, it's so much better than what we say in America. Like we, how you going? Why do Americans say, how's it going? Who cares? How's it going? How you going? That's a nice question. Yeah, it's, so it's anyway, it's true. Beautiful. I'm glad to hear it. Um, my question has related to something in Scripture. So a popular Islamic scholar slash preacher claims that the Quran is the infallible, perfect word of God and has no contradictions. And then he goes on to say, so if I can find a contradiction in the Bible, it must not be from God. And then he goes on to quote two passages from Scripture, Matthew 27, 5, which says... Um, that he fell and burst open after throwing the coins in the temple. And then Acts one eighteen, where... Oh, sorry, no, uh, Matthew 27, 5 is where he threw the coins and then hung himself. Um, and then uh, Acts one eighteen is where he um, bought the land and uh, fell over headlong, bursting open, I believe. But um, how can we answer this and defend our faith in light of these passages, which they claim is a clear contradiction? Uh, yeah, I so... Years ago, uh, I watched a scene in, I think, the movie's Hannibal. Now, this is not an endorsement of the movie at all. This was years ago. I don't think I would watch it today. I'm sure there's stuff in there I would cringe if you went back and saw it and said, oh, a Catholic answer's apologist told me to watch this. But what it did do for me was it revealed how these two things can both be true. Because in that scene, uh, a person partially disembowels themselves and then hangs themselves causing their their guts to fall forth. It's it's really gross. It's a disgusting scene. But it shows exactly what's being described in both Acts 118 and in Matthew 25, 27, excuse me, that Judas uh, probably cut himself in the guts. And then when he uh, throws his body down uh, by hanging himself, his insides become his outsides. Uh, so there's no contradiction there. They're describing two aspects of the same death. Um, and it, this is, I mean, this is one of those things where it's a, an obvious enough spot that you would think if there was a contradiction there, that the early Christians would have said, wait a second, uh, one of these has to be right, one of them has to be wrong. But rather, they were understood as just describing the death in two different ways. They were describing two different aspects of it. And these are also, by the way, the two places that mention the, the person of the potter's field. So it isn't like they're unaware of the tradition of Judas's death because they both refer to this specific detail with it. So I don't think there's a contradiction there. I think they're just describing different parts. Um, we could say there's much more that could be said about, you know, uh, the contradiction in Islam, even in the way it approaches the gospel, the notion of the Injil, the gospel allegedly written by Jesus that no one's ever found. It doesn't, you know, the Islamic testimony may be internally coherent, but it doesn't match up with history. It, it doesn't match up with anything we know outside of the Quran. So, yeah, that's, I guess, what I would say to that. 
Yeah, well, I mean, I don't think there's a contradiction because I believe it is God's word, but um, but I don't know how to respond to that. So, I mean, while you're not endorsing watching it, I will probably give that scene and I'll give it a quick glance <laughs> over just so I could get the idea so I could formulate a defence. But thank you very much for taking my question. Yeah, you bet. Thank you, Jack. Uh, thanks very much. That brings us just about to the break, so we'll get ready to take a break. But I'm, if you are a Muslim, I do encourage read those Gospels. Uh, and if you find those contradictions or things that appear to be contradictions, we'd love to talk with you about them. But more than anything, read those Gospels. Uh, it's not going to hurt. You won't be sorry you did. And we'd be happy to answer any questions that come up. We'll take a quick break. Be right back with Joe Heschmeyer and more Open Forum on Catholic Answers Live. Miss a show? Make sure to catch up by downloading the podcast, available online at catholic.com. Underwriting for Catholic Answers Live is provided by Real Estate for Life. Real Estate for Life connects home buyers and sellers to real estate agents while supporting pro-life organizations on the web at realestateforlife.org. The destination for great Catholic audio programming is EWTN Podcast Central, featuring the best of EWTN radio, as well as faith-filled podcasts from our friends and affiliates across the nation, all in one place, all free. If it's central to the faith, you can find it on EWTN Podcast Central. It's like podcast heaven. Visit EWTN.com slash radio slash podcasts today. Welcome back. Catholic Answers Live. Thanks so much for being here with us. Joe Heschmeyer is our guest, and I did it again. I have uh, pretty much every day since Advent started, I have waited until late in the show to wish you a blessed Advent. It really should be among the first things that I say because, I mean, when we're celebrating an important liturgical season of the church, I do want to acknowledge it, but I don't know what's up with me this year. But You know uh, what? It's Advent. a season yeah. of waiting, so it's fitting that people should have to wait for the greeting. <laughs> Joe finds the silver. I, that's right, Joe. It's a theological lesson I was trying to impart exactly. by making people wait. Right? It wasn't that I was just messing up. I appreciate that, Joe. Joe Heschmeyer, the, the by the way, we mentioned it last we time. Have for the, yes. Yeah, <laughs> and he'll get around to it. Uh, uh, last hour I mentioned it, but maybe you're just joining us this hour. Joe's got a new podcast, and really, I'm not uh, just um, blowing smoke here. Uh, it's getting rave reviews. People love it. And we've had people send texts and emails. We've had people call the show and say how much they're enjoying Joe's new podcast. It's called Shameless Popery. It's just like his uh, a blog that he used to do. But now it's got audio, it's got video, and it's got uh, Joe passionately uh, sharing and uh, defending the faith. Shameless Popery is the name, but the place you can go to get it is shamelessjoe.com. I think they wanted to make it as easy as they could on you. Shamelessjoe.com. Go there and uh, check it out. Right, Joe? You can also get it wherever you uh, normally get podcasts if you just type in shameless popery. But in case you don't know how to spell popery, the O P E R Y, uh, you can also go to shamelessjoe.com, whichever is easier. It's easier to spell Joe than popery. Even if you're really Catholic, it's easier to spell, spell Joe than popery. Uh, Jim in Missouri. Is, uh, is Yes, Jim in Missouri is next. Listen to EWTN on Channel 130 Sirius XM Satellite Radio. Jim, always happy to talk with a fellow Midwesterner. Go ahead with your question for Joe. 
That's right, and from Camdenton. So, Joe, I'm glad you enjoyed uh, my neighbor's hospitality this weekend. Oh, it was a wonderful time in Camdenton. I was very impressed. Yeah, good. So I'll get to my question. Um, in Genesis, uh, Adam uh, gets a mate. Uh, the Lord believes that uh, Adam was lonely and uh, needed a mate, made a woman. So later on in the Bible, uh, Paul, the avowed bachelor, apparently, uh, in his letter to the Corinthians, kind of puts down marriage in my mind. He he says, hey, don't get married unless uh, you, you can't help yourself. And uh, it's best if you, if you don't get married. So how do you reconcile that? It seems like uh, the Lord thinks uh, things are better if a, if a man is married as a companion. Yet uh, Paul says that uh, he doesn't really think so, that it's best to remain uh, solo. Yeah, that's a great question. And I'm glad you hit on those passages. I think there's a passage that's going to harmonize those and show how they fit together. Uh, but I'd say if you want the long answer for this, Pope John Paul II's Theology of the Body, his whole series of lectures that he gives, um, he begins with this idea of original solitude, which is all about it is not good for man to be alone. And then he continues over the course of a couple of years doing these Wednesday audiences where he then unpacks the meaning of the body, uh, human relationality, but then how do celibacy and virginity fit into that? So if you want the much longer, much more technical answer, you could read John Paul II. You could also read you know, any of the Wolstein, uh, Christopher West, any of the people who've tried to summarize uh, what JP2 is saying. But nevertheless, I think we can give a, a simple kind of brief answer, which is that in Matthew 19, Jesus shows both of these truths. Uh, because the uh, Pharisees come up and ask Jesus about divorce and about remarriage. And Jesus right, begins in yeah. verse 4. Uh, Have you not read that he who made them from the beginning made them male and female? And then he quotes the passage about the two becoming one flesh in Genesis. That's all about uh, this original solitude, that it is good to be married. But then uh, the disciples, realizing how radical the Christian teaching on marriage is, that you cannot get divorced and remarried, say, if such is the case for a man with his wife, it is not expedient to marry and then in verse 11, Jesus doesn't disagree with them. He says, not all men can receive this precept, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been made so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. He who is able to receive this, let him receive it. So Jesus gives a very clear trifold structure that divorce and remarriage is sinful. We could say fornication is sinful. All of that is sinful. That's the bad category. Marriage is the good category. It's God-given. Uh, we, we say Jesus raises marriage to the dignity of a sacrament. And St. Paul says the same thing. It is better to marry than to burn. He has a clear distinction between marriage is definitely better uh, than living a sinful single life or involuntary kind of celibacy. Marriage is better than that. Uh, but both Jesus and St. Paul are also clear that there is this other thing you can do, this voluntary renunciation for the kingdom that's actually even higher. So how do we harmonize that with the original teaching that it is not good for man to be alone? Well, the idea is that a voluntary sacrifice has to be a sacrifice of something good. That only if you understand marriage as a God-given good can you sacrifice it for an even higher good. So think about it in Lent. In Lent, you give up something that's like a, a good thing you've gotten from God. Your Lenten penance cannot just be, I'm not going to commit this mortal sin that I ordinarily commit. Like, that's not a sacrifice. That's the bare minimum of what you're already called to as a Christian. That sacrifice in the Christian sense is offering something more to God. 
and so and you're giving up something good. So think about the difference between starvation and fasting. With starvation, you don't have any food and that's bad. With fasting, you voluntarily deprive yourself of the good of food for a higher spiritual good. And that's good. So fasting and starvation might look the same, but spiritually they're a world apart. Likewise, involuntary celibacy and voluntary celibacy might look the same, but spiritually they're a world apart. How does that strike you? Um, I can understand that. Uh, that that makes sense to me. Uh, one question further on that would, would be, is there a possibility also that uh, Paul was speaking to a certain audience, maybe people destined to be priests, uh, something like that, or was was his audience there uh, just a general population? Well, his audience is a general population, but his advice isn't for everyone. He's very clear that those who can receive it should receive it. And Jesus says the same thing, that not everyone is called yeah. to celibacy or virginity. And so, you know, Paul That's is very true. clear, if you're going to burn, if you're going to be like consumed with lust, if you try to be a celibate, then don't pursue this route. That's not good for you spiritually. And the church follows this wisdom. You know, so for instance, if someone becomes a priest and they realize part of the way through their priesthood that they cannot live out celibacy without uh, constantly being in mortal sin, well, then the church will say, we're going to release you from these promises you made because that's, it's better to marry than to burn. Uh, so you have things like sure. voluntary laicization that, that happens in those cases. So, yeah, the one who can make that sacrifice, the one who's called to that sacrifice, that is a very good sacrifice to make. Because anytime you give up something good for God in pursuit of something better, that's something that we want to encourage. That's not just true for priests. That's true for everybody. You know, the, the spiritual life, you're to be a pilgrim on this earth. You're not to get overly attached to the things of earth, whether that's family, whether that's material comforts, whether that's fill in the blank, that you should always be ready to give up everything you have for the sake of the kingdom of God. And if you're not ready to do that, you haven't fully embraced the high cost of discipleship. Yeah, I get that. All right. Well, thanks, guys. Yeah, you thanks, bet. Jim. Thanks very, very much. Uh, Joe Heschmeyer, our guest, it's Open Forum. And we go right here to Iowa. Ralph in Iowa, listening on 105.3 FM. Ralph, we're both in Iowa. Yes. And as far as your comment goes about Iowans, that's true. But I've heard that people from Kansas are even better. <laughs> hey, look at that. Have that's you, a very Ralph. kind comment. Well, wait a second. <laughs> okay. if, if a guy from well, Iowa says that people... Go ahead, Ralph. Okay. Uh, the, uh, my question was about, because somebody else asked this, uh, why did Jesus come when he came? Now, you inferred some stuff with another guy earlier, but um, I was told by somebody else about the historical part of it, because the Romans were developing so many uh, roads and all this kind of stuff, and it made it advantageous that they, they could travel and spread the word of God much easier and things like that. So, I um, and if you give biblical contents, uh, same sort of slow because I got to jot them down for my RCIA class. <laughs> all right. Okay. Great. Well, I'll, let me start by saying that this is a great question that St. Thomas Aquinas answers in the Summa. 
And this is part three of the Summa. It is question one of part three, article five. So if you want a much more thorough answer, you can find it there. And he, what Aquinas is trying to do is he, he answers two things. Well, shouldn't God have come? Uh, shouldn't the incarnation have happened right when Adam and Eve fell? And then in Article 6, he says, well, shouldn't he have come at the very end of the world? You know, because you can think those would be two obvious kind of counter candidates. Now, you could make a similar suggestion uh, at any other point. But he responds to these kind of arguments by pointing out the evidence from Scripture itself. In Galatians 4, 4, St. Paul says that when the fullness of time was come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law. That we know from Scripture that the timing was, was just right. And so Aquinas suggests several reasons for this. Now, uh, we should be clear that some of this is speculative, right? But one of the things that he points out uh, is that there is a, a kind of spiritual path that it people had to kind of see the severity of sin before they were even ready to kind of recognize their need for a savior and that certainly i think one important part of the answer i think the thing you said about the the roman roads is another important uh part of the answer uh paul says he didn't want to wait too long lest the fervor of faith should cool by the length of time that if you delay the incarnation too much Okay, well, then you've got a problem that, you know, people will despair. If you have the incarnation before you have written records or before you have, you know, modern means of communication, then you have the incarnation, it doesn't spread, or there's no good historical record for it. So you can see the, the wisdom and the beauty and the brilliance of Jesus coming right when he came. And one of the ways we know that there's this wisdom, brilliance, and beauty to it is that Christianity took off, meaning that simply as a matter of history— we know two things. There have been numerous Messianic movements within Judaism. Within Hasidic Judaism, even today, there are people who claim to be the Messiah. Uh, and yet, none of those have transformed the world in the way Christianity has. That Jesus came at such a time in such a place that the world was ready for him, and the Christian message very quickly spread uh, all over the world. And so I'd say, given that, we can we can point to a, a very kind of complicated amalgam of factors. One of them is that uh, with the spread of the Roman Empire, Greek and Latin were languages that a great number of nations spoke, which made it very easy to quickly spread the gospel. And then you could go to those places that didn't speak Greek and Latin. So there's all sorts of historical factors that, that kind of factor into that. But Jesus doesn't want to do it too soon uh, and have it be lost to history or have people not appreciate the gravity of sin. He doesn't want to do it too late and have us just be overwhelmed with despair for our sins. So there's spiritual as well as really pragmatic reasons that I would point to there. Ralph, what do you think? I like that. And that was um, the Summa Part 3, Question mm -hmm. 1, Article question 5. Question 1. Yeah, really Article 5 and Article 6, but mostly Article 5. So yeah, Article okay. 5 and oh. 6 go together. Very good. Thank you very, very much. Yeah, you bet. Thank you, Ralph, uh, my fellow Iowan. 888-3187-884, the number here. And we're going to Massachusetts now. Julian in Massachusetts listening on the app. Julian, thanks for downloading the Catholic Answers app onto your phone. Go ahead with your question for Joe. Uh, hey, guys. Thanks for taking my call. Um, so my question's on the death penalty. 
Um, so I've heard conflicting things. I just wanted to confirm, did the Church officially change teachings on the death penalty, and is it now inadmissible? And then I have a follow-up that's question. A great, yeah, that's, that's a really good question. So the, uh, the relevant paragraph in the Catechism is 2267, uh, which talks about the inadmissibility of the death penalty today. Uh, and it deals with it being an attack on the inviability and the dignity of the person, but also deals with the fact that uh, there's a, a new understanding of penal sanctions and that effective, more effective systems of detention have been developed. In other words, that the church is not just making a statement that the death penalty is always and everywhere wrong, but is rather saying the situation has changed. There may be times and places in which the death penalty was necessary. Uh, it is the church's opinion, certainly as Pope Francis has expressed, that this is no longer the case, that you can sentence someone in such a way that you neutralize the threat of them uh, without recourse to the death penalty. Now, I think uh, there can be a complicated question about how effectively those alternatives work, and that would be a good push to create better uh, alternatives to the death penalty, to have more effective incarceration, um, maybe don't trade like arms dealers for soccer players or basketball players or, you know, whatever, you know, like whatever it is, like that there, there are ways you can, you know, reduce and even eliminate the, the risk. But that's a much more nuanced conversation than, than just death penalty or no. And Julian had a follow-up question. So Julian, if you can hang on through this break, we will uh, get uh, allow you to uh, get that follow-up question out. We'll get an answer from Joe. We'll take this break and be right back with more Open Forum on Catholic Answers Live. Catholic Answers Live. The recent decision by the U.S. Supreme Court to overturn Roe v. Wade was a monumental victory for the pro-life movement. But the fight is far from over. With our new booklet, Why We're Pro-Life, we have produced the perfect tool to prepare you to have peaceful and convincing conversations to shed light on the truth about human life from conception to natural death. Catholic Answers is printing millions of copies of this booklet, and we plan simply to give them away. You can help us in two ways. First, by generously supporting this project. 25 cents prints one book. $2,500 prints 10,000, and so on. Second, by helping us distribute the booklet through your parish, your school, or the pro-life ministry you work with. Catholic Answers is going to blanket the country with why we're pro-life. But only if you step up and help us. Thank you so much. For more information, visit whyweareprolife.com. Have you enrolled in the Catholic Answers School of Apologetics? Let me ask you a more important question. Do you believe as a Catholic that you have an obligation to share the Catholic faith? In fact, the church has answered this question, and the answer is that all confirmed Catholics are obliged to share the faith. It's actually in canon law. Catholic Answers is here to help you fulfill that obligation. Our School of Apologetics courses will equip you to help all the people you come in contact with understand what the church teaches and why. A great place to start is with all the Catholics in your life. Learn the art of apologetics from the best of the best and start sharing the gospel today. Visit schoolofapologetics.com. That's schoolofapologetics.com. Miss a show? Make sure to catch up by downloading the podcast, available online at catholic.com. 
This is Dr. David Anders. Join us for an engaging hour of questions and answers about the Catholic faith here on Call to Communion, Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern. Now, back to Catholic Answers Live. Answers Live. I'm Cy Kelly, your host. Joe Heschmeyer is our guest. It's a little bit of Friday open forum. And Julian's in Massachusetts, had a question about the uh, death penalty, but said he wanted a follow-up. And so, uh, Julian, now is your opportunity. Go ahead with your follow-up for Joe. Hey, can you guys hear me? Yes. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, so if, if, um, so, so if that's the teaching of the Catholic Church, um, it still seems like the Pope's uh, individual belief is that it's inadmissible in, in all cases, and that um, he seems to like speak out over, uh, uh, speak out against uh, past teachings. Um, so, if that is the case, um, how can the Pope like not um, profess and believe all that the Catholic Church, uh, you know, believes and proclaims to be revealed by God? Yeah, that's a that's a really good question. And I think what the Pope has said, um, certainly in terms of what's in the catechism, is that, you know, in light of these very particular things, including these kind of changing circumstances, in which case he's making a prudential assessment of the, the times. I don't know if that makes sense. But so, for instance, um, as Catholics, we believe that workers deserve just wages. This is something that is very clearly taught in the New Testament. But what a just wage looks like is going to differ based on culture and time and everything else. Uh, that doesn't mean that any answer is acceptable. Someone who says, I'm going to give workers a penny, I'm going to have sweatshop labor. Well, no, that's clearly outside the bounds. But there is a realm of acceptable opinion. And so what the Pope is saying is that today, in his view, the death penalty is no longer necessary, and that this is the stance of the Catholic Church. It doesn't follow from that that the death penalty was always unnecessary, uh, and it's very clear from several other popes that the death penalty was permissible. Uh, pope John Paul II was very explicit about this. Pius XII was very explicit about this. And I think these positions can coherently, you can hold both of them. Now, having said all that, if the question is, you know, privately Will a pope always agree with everything that the church has always taught? That's not something the Catholic Church teaches. Uh, in the past, popes have dissented from things that the, the church has taught, or at least uh, things that are implicitly taught by the church. There's, there's one very famous example, Pope John XXII, who thought that when the, uh, the souls of the just died, that they didn't enjoy the beatific vision until the second coming. And he was corrected by that, by the theologians of the University of Paris, and he recanted on that. This was not official church teaching. This was a pope's private opinion uh, being mistaken. So it's possible for a private opinion of a pope to be mistaken. Uh, but I think in this case, there's, there's no reason to uh, pit Pope Francis against his predecessors, even though there's an apparent contradiction. It, when you read the stuff about the changing times and circumstances, uh, to put it very plainly, if you're living in the Bronze Age, and you've got like a mass murderer, you don't have like a complicated penal system, and your choices are basically put the guy to death or let him go, well, you put him to death. But today, when you actually have secure ways that you can incarcerate someone and, and prevent them from committing more violence, that's no longer the, the choice that you're faced with. 
Does that give any clarity to uh, to the question? Yeah, definitely. That helps a lot. Thank you. I appreciate oh, it. Yeah, you bet. God bless you, Julian. Uh, thanks. Thanks very much uh, for the call and for the questions. I'm going to go to Colorado now. Janine in Colorado listening to EWTN on Channel 130, Sirius XM, Satellite Radio. Janine, thank you for the call. Go ahead with your question for Joe. Oh, thank you. Thank you for taking my call. So I have a question. I um, go to a healing service, which is anointing of the holy oil. And after um, everybody's done, the priest says like three different times, just remember you do not have to go to confession. Your, your sins have been forgiven. Um, I just wondered what your thoughts were on that. Uh, I'm slightly aghast by that. <laughs> I would want to know a lot more, but what I'm hearing is alarming and incorrect. So there is what's called general absolution, which uh, under particular circumstances for a legitimate uh, reason where physical or moral like impossibility. Well, no, like, so for instance, um, before the Battle of Gettysburg, the Catholic chaplain there offered a general absolution so that if those soldiers who might die in battle, who hadn't had a chance to individually go to confession, they weren't going to go to hell just because they, they didn't have time to form a line in the middle of the battle. Uh, that's general absolution. Now, that uh, the the Vatican, or excuse me, Pope Paul VI actually has a decree on the right of penance from 1973, which talks about this being a, a very special kind of exceptional circumstance that you use this. And this was abused uh, by Catholic priests in America as well as other places, and they would just kind of willy-nilly try to give out general absolution. I don't know if that's what this priest is doing or if he's just doing some non-absolution that he thinks is as good as, as sacramental confession. But either way, I would, I would A, ignore that advice, and B, uh, say something to his superior to maybe provide some more clarity on the issue, because... He could be doing really serious uh, spiritual damage to people if he's telling them not to uh, go to confession. The, the Catholic Church is very clear that regular confession is to be encouraged, even among those who aren't in mortal sin. There's a real spiritual benefit to regularly going to confession, even if you're only confessing venial sins, because it is not just about eliminating mortal sin. It also fortifies your soul and strengthens you on the journey. Joe, okay. may I ask before? Yeah, I'll, I'll go back to you, Janine. I, I, Janine, I'll, I'll go right back to you. I just want to ask Joe one question, and then I'll, I'll let you follow up. Is, is there another possibility that the priest is intending to administer the sacrament of sick and is saying you don't have to go to confession because you've received forgiveness? Like, it, it's possible, but even, yeah, I would, I would not, like, go to confession. And, and maybe talk to the bishop, because <laughs> yeah. this is one of those things where I don't know enough about what's going on and what the right is that's being used. Um, but it sounds right. like either extreme unction or general anointing, or excuse me, general absolution is being abused in some way. That, that it's, that's not the way the Church intends the sacraments to be administered. Okay, okay Janine, go yeah, ahead. I mean, I, that's why I'm questioning it, because, I mean, I go every week or, or at least, one, at the very least, once a month. But, yes, and it just kind of confused me, because a couple of the elderly people were very concerned about that statement. So mm -hmm. I just wanted to ask. Thank you. I appreciate your yeah, input on that. Thank you, Janine. Uh, thanks very, yeah, very thank much. Thank you. Uh, yeah, that's a very odd uh, situation, but we do come up against those odd situations, and it's 
it's hard to know what the priest has in mind. I mean, my, uh, my general a... advice is if you're doing something no other parish or no other priest is doing, that's probably a red flag. Um, you know, if, yeah. if no one yeah, else has heard of think. the thing you're doing, that's probably right. not the thing you're supposed to be doing. Yeah, right. Um, uh, boy, I'd kind of like, uh, Janine, I, I, maybe you could call us back and tell us how this one works out, because I'm kind of curious about what that priest thinks that he's uh, doing. Uh, what, what is he up to? Merla is next, however, and I'm going to go to Merla in Las Vegas, Nevada, listening to EWTN on Channel 130, Sirius XM Satellite Radio. Merla, go ahead with your question for Joe. Hi, good afternoon. Hi. Hi, Merla. We're glad you're here. Hi. Yeah. I just, um, just want to ask because um, we heard and we read about a lot, like, you know, um, during the Mass, the Lord's Prayer, that it should be for the priest alone. And we feel like, you know, we don't we don't do that one anymore because we read that one. And read that. But then why is not being taught in the church? So why is what not being taught? Saints? Uh, the, the Lord's Prayer that uh, is only for the pray, uh, priest to raise the uh, the hands. Oh, the raising of the but hands. Not, the raising of the hands in the Lord's yeah, Prayer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then uh, it's not being taught in the church, and the priest didn't say anything about it. I kind of like having like discussion with some of, uh, you know, fellow Catholics also. And then they said, like, you know, what uh, because when I saw something that's really good to like to share from the EWTN usually that I have, and I share that one my kids and some, and, you know, like having like reply on that and said like, oh no, the priest didn't say anything. It should be coming from the priest, something like that. I said, this is already like, you know, been open uh, to like everyone that it's only for the priest, but then we still see that one a lot in the, in the church. Right. And one said okay. also like, um, it's not official because it's not being like, you know, um, it's not coming really. I don't know. <laughs> That's why sometimes. Yeah, I, so I can give a little bit like, of background you know. to that, I think. Um, it's a good question because in the general instruction of the Roman Missal, the priest is instructed to make what's called the Oron's position, which is the, the lifting up of the hands in prayer, representing his prayer on behalf of the people. And... Uh, because in the liturgical context, that is the priest's kind of role. He is, he is interceding on our behalf. He is uh, offering his prayers on behalf of the whole church, that it is an appropriate gesture for him to make. And there's no instruction for the laity to make that gesture. And it's not really clear what it would mean for us to make that gesture in that context. Now, in other contexts, you know, 1 Timothy 2, verse 8 uh, St. Paul says, I desire then that in every place men should pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or argument, that there is that sense in which praying with your hands up is is fine in private prayer. It's good in private prayer. Uh, that that gesture of, of prayer is actually really good. So the general instruction neither permits nor forbids it. Now, that doesn't necessarily settle the issue. There's nothing in the instruction that says, that when the priest gives a homily, you shouldn't also give a homily. But the understanding is that, well, the priest is supposed to be doing that. You're not supposed to be doing that. So the fact that it's not written in there not to do that, the the default assumption is, no, no, it's meant for him to do it because of his particular priestly role. And that if you're trying to suggest that you're a priest in the same way the priest is, that's theologically confused. If you're trying to lift up your hands in worship, there's a biblical basis for it, but I would suggest in this context, 
it's more disruptive than it is uh, helpful. So I don't do it. I, I don't get overly worked up when somebody else does it, as long as they're not trying to be the priest. There's sometimes, you know, I don't want to assume the worst of someone who does do it. it. This was one of those things that, you know, the laity tried to imitate what the priest is doing. There's uh, the East and the West do the sign of the cross in opposite directions. And one of the theories behind that is that the laity in, like imitated what they saw the priest doing, but in mirror image. And so, you know, it, it would not be the first time that, that lay people imitated the priest's gesture. But in this context, we're, we're not called to do that. And I would suggest that it's better to keep your hands folded in prayer to, to signify your role as distinct from the role of the priest. Merla, oh, thanks. Okay. Uh, thanks very, very much. Uh, uh, the, the thing is, uh, the, this is just one of those things, Joe, where I, I do think people get all kinds of different answers on that. Uh, I do appreciate yeah. your clarity. I'm not saying you weren't clear, but I, it's, it's just one of those areas of church life that where people get all kinds of uh, different answers. I, well, however, I also I see false answers on... in both directions. I, I see it, that yeah, it's been forbidden right. by the church, which isn't true. And I also hear people who think that the church is like calling them to do it, which also isn't true. This is, you know, right. neither of those is, is what the church has said. But I do think your liturgical innovation where uh, we give our own homilies while the priest is giving us is a good one. And so I'm going to go with that, uh, Joe. So thank you for coming up with that idea. We'll take a quick break. I'm going to work really on my homily. Everything. <laughs> right back. Joe Hesmeyer, Open Forum, Catholic Answers Live. There's only one Catholic Answers Live. We have a big problem. Our culture is dying and souls are in danger of being lost. The answer is conversion to Jesus Christ in His church. St. Paul Street Evangelization is a Catholic organization and we have hundreds of teams spreading the good news throughout the country. But we need your help. The harvest is great, but the laborers are few. Find out more and get involved today at streetevangelization.com. That's streetevangelization.com. Divine Intimacy Radio. The greatest joy in my life is helping others to come to know Christ more fully. And there's no better light on this path, the path to deep union with God, than the wisdom of the saints. Talking about this daily on EWTN Radio is one of the great joys of my life. Divine Intimacy Radio, Sunday, 6.30 a.m., 1.30 p.m., and 11 p.m. Eastern on EWTN Radio. Catholic Answers Live. There were lots and lots of people online, but I think there's a couple lines open now that uh, and we'll probably be able to get to you if uh, you're the first uh, two or three people that calls right now. Uh, don't worry, Eric, I'm coming to you, and uh, Lewis, I'm, I'm coming to you, but I uh, just want to let people know there's a few lines uh, open. 888-318-7884 is the number, and it's open forum. That means open to anybody. Uh, if, you, or if you're just catching the show and you're like, what, these Catholics, I don't know, I've always wanted to ask, go ahead. You can ask. Uh, Joe would be happy to take your uh, question and give it the best answer he can. 888-318-7884. I am uh, informed that Luis is Luis. It says uh, uh, Spanish pronunciation. So Luis, I apologize for that. But we are coming to you, so hang on the line. Uh, Eric in Wisconsin, or Eric maybe in Wisconsin, watching on YouTube. Uh, you are next. Go ahead with your question. It is originally, like, um, pronounced Eric, 
that a reek. Oh. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. Well, there we go. All right. I'm not so good with the Scandinavian um, names. What do I know? <laughs> Eric yeah, the misread. But, um. <laughs> um. But, oh my gosh. Um. But my question is, um, if God didn't want evil, why did He create the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Because that created sin, and also like it also created evil. That's a great question. Uh, the Catechism actually gives, I think, a pretty clear answer to this in paragraph 396, uh, which is that God created man in his image and established him in his friendship. A spiritual creature, man can live this friendship only in free submission to God. So you you have to understand that the the way that we are created is to freely know, love, and serve God. That there is, in this realm... Uh, a twofold possibility. One, that we can choose not to submit to God. But two, related to that, it's actually impossible for us to find happiness or satisfaction apart from God. And so the Catechism in 396 goes on to say, the prohibition against eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil spells this out. For in that day you eat of it, you shall die. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil symbolically evokes the insurmountable limits that man, being a creature, must freely recognize and respect with trust. Man is dependent on his creator and subject to the laws of creation and to the moral norms that govern the use of freedom. Let me break that down. That God creates us as rational creatures. We're able to have an, we have an intellect and a will. We're able to think about things. We're able to rationalize. We're able to do all sorts of things that animals can't do. But we're rational creatures. So we're both creatures and we're rational. Inherent within that is twofold fact. One, because we're creatures, we cannot provide our own glorification. We cannot provide our own satisfaction. We aren't the solution to our own quest for happiness. Because we're rational, we can know that and we can also choose to go a different route. If we weren't rational, uh, we would just naturally follow our nature. That was a very bad sentence, but you get the idea. We'd just follow our, our nature, our instincts, whatever. Water flowing downhill doesn't think, you know, maybe it should flow somewhere else. It's always going to take the path of least resistance. Same thing with electricity. Animals are always going to follow their instincts. As rational creatures, we have a nature. It's inscribed. It's not something we create for ourselves. But we are able to imagine another course of events. We're able to imagine, for instance... What if I'm God of reality? And so the perennial temptation of man is to want to be the God of the universe. This is in a different way the devil's temptation. He doesn't want to serve God because he wants to be God. And the temptation that Adam and Eve face, if you go back and read the devil's temptation, he says, you'll be like God. It's, you know, deny that you're a creature, treat yourself as God. And I would suggest, and this is, I don't know, maybe a little provocative, that we feel, we see this every day. Uh, you know, there's a, the famous line in Planned Parenthood v. Casey that the heart of freedom is the ability to define one's own reality. That's a misconception of freedom, that I'm not truly free unless I'm the God of the universe and can create my own reality the way God does. I get to redefine language. I get to redefine gender. I get to redefine fill in the blank. I get to recreate everything and make it in my own image and likeness. 
make reality the way I want it to be made. That's the temptation that is symbolized in the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, to not treat myself as a creature, but to treat myself as a creator. Because you have reason, because you have intellect, you can you can delude yourself in that way. If you didn't have reason, if you didn't have intellect, you wouldn't even be tempted towards that. Like an animal doesn't think maybe I'm the God of the universe because it doesn't have enough reason to even have that question cross the threshold. But because you've been given these tremendous gifts of intellect and will, you, you are inherently capable of that temptation. I don't know a way uh, that God could create creatures with intellect and will without creating the possibility that they will use that intellect and will in, in a way that is contrary uh, to what God desires. So I think that's at the heart of it. So the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the catechism doesn't treat it as a literal physical tree, but is rather a, a way of expressing this inherent problem in the human condition that because you're rational, you're capable of denying your own creatureliness. Is that clarifying? Does that make sense? Yes, that makes a lot more sense. Good. Eric, thanks. Uh, appreciate that call. Uh, let's uh, go to Luis now. We promised we would. Luis, uh, uh, in Rhode Island, watching on YouTube, you are next. Luis, go ahead with your question for Joe. Thank you, Sai, and hello, Joe. A huge fan. Um, I was just looking for resources regarding um, homilies written by saints, something like the Catina Aurea. I think that's how you pronounce it. I don't know. By St. Thomas, but like with more, um, with more modern saints. Oh, yeah. That's a great question. Uh, the, the first thing that jumps out to me is uh, St. Jose Maria Escriva uh, has a book called Friends of God, which is all a series of homilies that he's given. Um, honestly, one of the easiest things to do, if there's a particular saint that you have a devotion to who's a priest, if you type in that saint's name and the word homilies afterwards in Google, there's a really good likelihood that if they've got written homilies out there, you will find them immediately. So the, the question is really like, who are the saints to whom you have a devotion? Because if you're looking for the homilies of like the Curie of Ars or the homilies of Alphonsus Liguori or something, you, you can find those uh, usually very easily. If you're looking for, you know, Augustine's got a bunch of homilies. I know that you said newer saints. But the idea of being very simply, whoever you have a devotion to, if they preached, chances are good. We've got a record of that preaching and it's usually available for free. If not, you can at least find the book. Uh, in which to, in which you can find it. Okay. Yeah, sounds sounds um, great. Uh, Luis, I don't know if I can say Shira, this. Is there anyone? Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. No, I, I don't, oh, sorry. I don't I, usually I, say I this. Um, but uh, I, I, I do think I can improve on Joe's answer. Um, <laughs> there's a book <laughs> called Sermons in Times of Crisis, 12 Homilies to Stirve Your Soul uh, by Father Paul Scalia. And he, there, I, I, uh, this, this won't do everything you want uh, done, but he picked 12 of the best homilies ever given in the history of the church and assembled them into one book. And they really are great. They're fantastic. I, that that uh, is an they, improvement on my answer. I, I didn't even know that book existed. Is it really? Oh. Yeah, no, that, I'm, I'm, well, I, I, I think get, that's a great answer. And, you know, the other, uh, the other Louis, thing with I, it is I, that can also introduce you to a really good preacher, someone who really resonates with your soul. And then I would say, go punch that into Google and see if you can find more homilies <laughs> they've written. Luis, you were going to say something. I kind of stepped on your, uh, uh, go ahead. No worries. Thank you. Uh, I was just saying, um, Joe, besides Jose Maria Escriva, is there anyone, is there a thing who you would actually recommend? 
Oh, Saint Jose Maria would be my first first immediate choice. Uh, Saint John Henry okay. Newman has a bunch of homilies. He's a little more technical because he's writing for like a British nineteenth century audience. So occasionally, it's not the way we would speak today. Um, but I think his homilies are great. I love the homilies of like Pope John Paul II, which are available on the Vatican's website. I think those are often really beautiful and profound. Um, yeah, so those would be some good starter ones. Okay, thank you very much. Yeah. Thanks, Luis. Thank you very much. Uh, let's see. I think we can get another uh, question in here. Oh, we can, um, I think we can. I'll tell you what. Uh, Thomas in Houston, Texas, listening on Guadalupe uh, Radio Network. Uh, if you can be really quick, we can get you an answer, but you're going to have to be quite quick getting your uh, question to Joe. Like quicker than this. Do we have Thomas with us? What happened? Thomas in Houston? Uh, yes, I'm here. Thank you okay, go ahead. Real quick. Uh, with sure. Um, the question has been raised locally that uh, permission by Rome and by the Vatican has been given for the ordination of women as priests. Uh, Is there any, any truth to that? I know it's, it's explicitly condemned and rejected as impossible. Uh, Pope John Paul II and Ordinatio Sacerdotes Sacerdotes in 1994 uh, says not only... Do we not have women priests? No pope has the ability to create women priests because Jesus didn't establish a co-ed uh, priesthood. He establishes a male-only priesthood. So the deeper reason is why. And to that, I would say the reason is because to be a priest is more like being a father than it is like being like a doctor or a lawyer. Like if you think of the priesthood as a profession, well, profession should be open to anyone who's qualified, male or female. But if you think of a priesthood as vocational and relational, well, no woman, no matter how great she is, can be a dad. And no man, no matter how great he is, can be a mom. And so once you understand the priesthood is relational and vocational, then hopefully you can see why it's male only. Uh, Thomas, thanks very much. Joe says those things about motherhood and fatherhood because he doesn't live in California. But uh, nonetheless, Joe, uh, <laughs> <laughs> good job on the <laughs> Don't forget, Joe's got a brand new podcast, uh, Shameless Popery. It's out now. Just go to shamelessjoe.com, and you can listen uh, to Joe's fine new podcast, shamelessjoe.com. Joe, thanks. It's, as always, a really fun two hours. Oh, thanks. My pleasure. And uh, I can't believe it, uh, but that does it for us today. I don't like it, but I got to live with it. We'll see you next time. God willing, right here on Catholic Answers Live. <laughs>